Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown Podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And today we have a couple special guests. These are the, our first guests outside of the I Am Sober app. And we have Bill and Kara. Hello, Bill and Kara. Hello. How are you, everybody? Hey, Drifter. It's Kira. 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 I mess up everybody's name. <laughs> a lot of people mess up my name. Yeah, Kira. It's, it's Kira. Yes. Okay. I got it now. So um, are you, I didn't even ask, are you guys married? No. no. But you've been together for a while and you got yes. sober together. Yep. Right. So Bill, you're going to start this out for us. All right. Let me get a sip of water here. And while he's getting a sip of water, let me tell you guys real quick about the Sobertown Podcast. Um, SobertownPodcast.com. All of our episodes are on SobertownPodcast.com. We have blogs. I just created a new page, AA uh, and the 12 steps, and it's all traditional. And I'll be creating another one that's non-traditional later with the, like the Russell Brand type uh, mentality. But okay, Bill, go ahead. All right. Hello, everybody. So my name is Bill W. And boom, <laughs> got that one. I thought yes. that would be a fun one. Yes, it is. Um, so I've been sober for about four and a half years. And I got sober on New Year's Eve in Baltimore, Maryland. So my story goes back to when I was a kid at the age of 10 or 12, somewhere elementary school or middle school. And, you know, I had a good family growing up and I was just kind of a normal childhood. Um, but when I was a kid, we got our first computer and I went on the internet and First thing I found was internet porn and the internet porn of those days are much different than today. It's mostly just chat rooms and trading online pictures with who knows who, but that was the, the start of my addiction. Every day I would come home and immediately just hop on the computer and jump into chat rooms and start with the pictures and the porn addiction and I remember to this day, my neighbors, my, my friends, they, they came over one day and they saw what I was doing and they were like, whoa, dude, this is, this is not normal. Like, why, why are you doing this? And as like a kid, I had no idea. I didn't realize that it wasn't normal. And what they said didn't really matter to me at that point. But I know it's strange that I still think about that today. I can still remember that situation, that scenario. So that's where my addiction started. And that was the baseline for addiction for me all the way up until 32, 31, 30, somewhere in there. Uh, so that lived with me for a really long time. And my drug and alcohol. So you basically went through your uh, junior high school and high school year uh, addicted to porn. Yeah, that was it. And my friends in junior high and high school, 
you know, they were like normal junior high and high school kids. They would drink and we really didn't, they really didn't do drugs, but they would drink. Like we would go over to friends' houses and party in their parents' basements and they would be the ones getting super drunk. And I would not. I was just like the server dude. I would drive them to Wawa, which is like a convenience store on the East Coast. And I was just a server guy. Like I wasn't, I had nothing to do with it. It was just the porn. That was my thing. And I could not understand drinking because I saw what it did to my friends. And, you know, they looked like they were having a good time, but I didn't want to do it. So, yeah, I was the, the server kid growing up amongst all my friends. And it wasn't until our senior year my friend's parents went away and we threw a big party right across from the police station at his parents' house. And there was, the house was just full of people. And I'm pretty sure that's like where my, my first drink was. Um, it was a fun time. We had, we had a great time. I didn't get like too drunk or anything, but I remember that's where it started was senior, the end of senior year of high school. And from there, it was just, it was just getting drunk and, being crazy. I remember being in his basement after that during that summer and everybody else would fall asleep. I'd keep drinking or, you know, I'd be so drunk that I couldn't go to sleep. So I'd go out for a run in the middle of the night around the neighborhood. It was, it was strange times. And then I went to college and all I, I didn't really want to go to college. I didn't actually, excuse me, care about college at all. I applied to like two colleges one was the cool college that I wanted to go to university of Delaware, but I did not have the grades to get into that. And the other one was Shippensburg university and just like a state school out in the middle of nowhere. I applied to that because my friend applied there and I was like, well, if she's going to go, I'll go. No big deal. Like that'll be fun. We'll go together. So I got into that school. She got into that school and that's where I went to college. And I remember getting there the first day and I did not want to be there. Just was not, not a place I wanted to be. However, within the first couple, like within the first day, I was excited to be there because there was all these fun people that I was with. And immediately we all started down the the drink and drug path pretty quickly with my new college friends and, for me, that was, that was just the way it was just, you know, drink and drink some more. And that only lasted for like a year and a half for me, college. Um, basically because I spent all my time doing drugs and partying way longer than everybody else. Everybody else would party and then go do their schoolwork. And I just, so you don't, do you don't bend to alcohol and drugs. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was the thing. When, when we went to parties, you know, you have to pay at the door to get a cup and I would give them my $5 and I would say, Hey, keep the cup. I have a beer bong in my book bag. This is what I use to fill up. So I would go to the keg and I would never leave the side, like never leave the side of the keg. I would just sit there and I would do beer bongs and I was like the popular guy because I had the beer bong and I thought that was great. So I was the party starter. I was the person who controlled the kegs, most of the places that I went, which 
I thought that was like, that was the cool part. I was the powerful dude at the party, but that was also my demise for sure. And I left Shippensburg after a year and a half because my grades were terrible. Uh, I wrote a letter to the school because you could, you could like appeal it so that you could get back in. They were like, okay, you can come back in, but you have to do this, this, and this. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going back. School's not for me. That's just not it. So I left Chippensburg, went back home. I have a question about that right there too. So you're partying every night. Um, Were it, did it at any point during this time, did you think that, um, you had a problem with alcohol. What are your addictions? Um, no, because all my friends who were with me and doing the same stuff, they were all getting in trouble. They were getting caught. You know, they were being drunk, getting caught stumbling, coming home. The campus security were getting them and doing all this stuff. And I was not getting caught. I was, I don't know, slicker than they were, I guess. Who knows? So even though your grades were bad, you really wasn't putting that together with, with your drinking. I mean, did you ever wake up like, um, do like depressed and stuff like that because of where you were at with your grades and all that and think that it was alcohol? Um, no, cause I didn't really care about my grades. I didn't really see school being my path at all. You know, it was just like, this is awesome. I can do literally whatever I want all the time. I can show up to class sometimes if I want. And there were some classes. There was a class I got 101% in because it was such a cool class. Like, I loved that class. But all the other classes, they were terribly boring and I saw no point in them. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't see myself as being an alcoholic or substance abuser at that point at all. I didn't really see that being a problem until you know, the, the six months before I got sober, I just thought that was the way for many, many people. It seemed normal because that's all the people I surrounded myself with were the same people that were doing the same things that I was. So then you left college. Yeah. And I found those people again. That was the, I just went and found those people. I went to, I went and worked at a bar and that was awesome because I got free drinks there and I snuck drinks there and but everybody else was doing it too. Everybody else was just drinking while they worked and it was normal. So I was like, Oh, this is great. And I was really good at that job too. Like I got promoted a bunch of times and I was making more than anybody else in the bar and I wasn't even a bartender or a server. So I, I felt good about myself and I was able to get real drunk and do whatever I wanted. So that, that lasted for a few years and I started a business in that time as well. I was detailing cars at a mobile car detailing business. And that was back in the day and there wasn't many services like that in my area. So it was fun. We live in a very affluent area. So I was getting to detail a lot of really nice Ferraris and Bentleys and Lambos and Porsche race cars and stuff. Um, but I wasn't saving any of my money. It was just living in a, a house with like three other people 
And, you know, I was like 21, 22 at the time. So it was kind of normal to live in a crappy house and have parties all the time with your friends. And it was like the same thing from college, except I brought it home and it was, it was the time too. So we were, we were still young, but I wasn't saving any of my money. I'd spend it all on weed and alcohol every weekend going to the bar. Luckily I didn't have to pay to go out because we would just go to the bar that I was working at. So that was nice. Saved me some money. And yeah, it was like, it was that way for a really long time. That was, that was just my life. I would, I had my own business and then, you know, just drugs and alcohol. That's what it was. You wake up, get high, go to work. I was getting high at work. You know, I'd be at these customers' houses and smoking bowls, you know, in between. And it was, it definitely wasn't okay, but I thought I was being shady enough and I never, I only got caught once by a customer and they didn't seem to mind, but, you know, looking back, it's like, wow, that was, that was bad. Um, So I can see looking backwards where there was a point where I just started not to care at all about anyone around me, what they thought or what I was doing. It's just, I needed to do it. And yeah, and years and years went by, probably like six or seven years. I stopped with that business and I started up with my dad, um, working, helping him start a business. And I, I eventually moved back into their house and it was the same deal. Like I was living with my parents and working at a bar again. And I'd come home late at night. And I lived in the basement, so I come home late at night, all drunk, fall asleep while I'd make some food when I got home, trying not to wake them up. I'd be bringing girls home to my parents' basement, and you know, then we could wake up in the morning, and my dad's like sitting there at the counter, and he's like, "Oh, this, you know, here's another random girl in my house that my son brought home," and that to to me the, now that's kind of embarrassing, and it was kind of then too, but that point I was like, well, I'm just going to get drunk again and get high and forget about that feeling that my dad, you know, like the way he looked at me, it's like, well, I don't need to feel that anymore. So I'm just going to keep going about that. So it sounds like other than your dad, there was really no accountability for you at all. Was there? No, none whatsoever. None. And, you know, even like, even my dad, he, he was a drinker too. Like he would, he would drink a six pack a night that's just how it was. Like as a kid, we would go to the beer store together and I'd get all the fun posters that they used to pass out at the beer store. And there was like beer posters in my room as a kid. And so I grew up around here. Like that's just how it was. And so there wasn't like much accountability even for my dad because he was drinking too. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a different time. It was, I'm happy to be, have gotten sober from, I, I can't imagine being that person anymore. It's even just talking about it now, it's just bringing up feelings and little flashes of my life that have gone by and all the things that have changed since then. Like talking about my dad drinking, he doesn't drink anymore. He got sober after like a year or so of me being sober. He, he saw all the pain that I went through and like the growth that I went through during my sobriety, because I was working with him every day 
So I would like get in the car and, you know, I told him about my porn addiction on our way to work a bunch. And I remember saying some, like some of the AA mantras to him because I was just crying on the way to work or I was just a mess. And like, I could barely even hold it together. So my dad, he got to see, he got to see the transformation from the bottom. So you, you guys had started a business together mm-hmm. and you were also bartending together. And then no, no, we, we weren't bartending together. Or not no, no. bartending together, but you were bartending and started a business together. And yeah. and um you were living in the basement. And mm-hmm. then how long how long did that go on? Uh man, that was that was that was a long time ago, but probably like three years, maybe four years, something Was like that, that when you met um Kira? Kira, is it Kira? Kira, Kira. <laughs> I've like the world's worst pronunciations. It's okay. Nobody ever gets it right the first 12 times. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Towards the end, that's when we met because one of my friends that I worked with the bar, at the bar with, he he would actually, he was a, he'd sell drugs, he'd sell pot to all our friends. So him and I would just kind of hang out at his house and Kira, um, yeah, Kira kind of ended up in that fold because we were climbing at a rock gym together and that's kind of how we met. Then we all started partying together. They moved into, Kira moved into Westchester and that's like the town where we all kind of lived in. So eventually we all kind of migrated into the, the town center. I moved out of my parents' house and in by myself actually i moved in with a girlfriend and then she moved out like within three months so i had this place to myself and yeah i lived by myself after that for a long time and it was just it was the same thing you know it was just drugs every morning drugs when i got home yeah i I bike ride my bike a lot like exercise a lot We, we did a lot of fun stuff but and you and Kira partied together during that time too, huh? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did. Partied and we'd go on adventures together and we'd do all sorts of fun stuff. But there was all like, if you, you had to have the bowl, you had to have the drugs. And, you know, that was like, we'd always go with that. And then the beer and the alcohol would always, almost always come with us at some point too. So Kara, do you want to like, bring us into your addiction, how you started out? Yeah, sure. So I'll give you some of my background and I'll, <laughs> I'll bring my timeline up to meet Bill's and then we can talk about Perfect. how we got sober. <laughs> um, so I also grew up in Southeastern Pennsylvania, good family. Um, my parents were together. They were not big drinkers um, and did not use drugs. Um, <laughs> So I didn't have a lot of exposure to addiction um, as a kid. And um, my parents had like a bar in the house growing up. But at one of my Halloween parties as a 10-year-old, we knocked over the entire bar and broke every single bottle of liquor. And it was never replaced. So growing up, you know, alcohol wasn't um, an important thing to my family. So, um, it's unusual, I think for 
people to hear a story where I wasn't exposed to addiction, but somehow I fell into it. And um, for me, it started in high school and I have reflected on my coming to addiction story for years and still don't quite have an answer as to why, um, why it, it took me. Um, I keep coming back to this idea that maybe I didn't feel secure enough in who I was. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Um, started using drugs and alcohol in high school. And I believe it was just a way for me to feel accepted by the group, um, to feel cool, to feel like, um, like a normal teenager. It seemed to me that everyone was doing it. I know now that that wasn't the case, but. And that was in high and that was in high school. Yeah. About 14, 15 years old, started drinking with my friends. And when I look back on that time in my life, um, the early years of drinking and drugging, I can see that I wasn't like my friends. I was the one that drank more. Let's take another shot. Let's finish this bottle. I was the one that was blacked out. I was the one that was trying to climb up on a roof or sneaks over a fence or like, let's go for a joy ride. Um, and I'm just so grateful that I never you know, really hurt myself then because I put myself in a lot of really dangerous positions. Um, I had a boyfriend in high school whose father was an alcoholic. And so he was absolutely against drinking and using drugs. Um, so my secret keeping in my addiction started then, not just keeping it from my parents who um, certainly would have not approved, but also hiding it from my closest confidant and best friend and, and romantic partner. Um, even then, um, if I went out with some friends and got wasted, uh, I'd have to hide that from him. I had to hide my drug use from him. So this was the snowball that turned into an avalanche of addiction, just turning me into the person I'd never wanted to be lying, deceiving, the people that I loved most in my life. And when I got to college, um, you know, similar to Bill in a way, my decision to go to school was really based on what was the best party school. And I was a good student. I had straight A's, you know, I was very successful. I had teachers telling me I could do and be whoever and whatever I wanted with the type of performance that I had but none of that mattered. My ambition was purely to be in a place where I would feel cool and accepted. And like, I was in a place where I could party. So I made a choice um, to go with a big party school in Pennsylvania. And first week was drinking, blacking out. Um, I discovered sororities and fraternities and decided that I was gonna go through that whole thing. And once again, making a decision about what sorority I wanted to join, I got an invitation from every sorority, which is like, ooh, big honor. But how did I make my choice as to which sorority to join? Which group of girls were partying the hardest? Which group of girls seemed to be the wildest? Like I needed to be in that club. And so I joined. And even within that club of 60 instant besties, I felt like I needed to be the coolest, the wildest, 
the hardest partier in that group. And so every night I strove to keep that record and I never felt better. And it's, I see now that that wasn't a true feeling of acceptance towards myself. It wasn't true confidence and self-esteem. It was, it was completely false. I, I felt good. Um, I have no idea if any of those people actually liked me, but I felt really well liked. I felt popular. I felt like everyone invited me to the parties because I brought a certain level of fun um, and, and craziness. Um, to this day, I'm friends with none of those people. Um, and it's been, you know, 10, 13, 15, I don't even know, 15 years <laughs> at least. Um, I'm 33 now. So I was 18 then when it got, you know, really hardcore. And that was also when I started to venture out of just alcohol and weed and using whatever was at the party. Um, I just didn't say no to anything. Um, and I think that's when things started to become really problematic. Um, I had a job and I was constantly calling out and, you know, my boss didn't fire me. And so it was enabling in a way. Um, I went to class and I felt like I wasn't the only one that was still drunk. Um, and I was making it through. So again, like I didn't get kicked out of college. So I just kept doing it. Um, my friends supported me. Like I would ask you, Hey, you want to go to this party tonight? And they would agree to go, even though I was the one that was really struggling. I was the one whose life was kind of falling apart, but I, it just, I never hit a wall that, uh, where I had to be responsible so I could just keep going with it. And, um, when I was 18 spring of 2006, I started to realize that I had a bigger problem and it was that I was using harder drugs and I was starting to lose things like of all things to make you feel like you might need some help. Um, I would like lose my wallet and lose my cash and lose my favorite hat. And it was, it was this obsession with like, gosh, why do I keep losing my, like literally losing my shit um, that made me feel like I got a problem. I can't even keep track. I'm like completely blacking out from 9 PM until, you know, 10 AM the next day what was my life like? And I'm like losing my belongings. So I've got a problem here. So I went to get help for the first time. I went to an outpatient therapy center and signed a bunch of paperwork and they made me take a drug test, P test. And, um, in that moment, um, they said, you need to go to detox. Like we can't help you because you are completely, you know, you're, you're messed up right now. <laughs> and, um, I was not and this, prepared. This is that. at 18 years old. 18. Yeah. yeah wow. Um, I wasn't prepared for that, but I agreed to give it a try. And so my dad actually took me back to my dorm room to clean up my dorm. And basically what that meant to me, like, you know, I'm telling him, oh, I need to go pack a bag. Realistically, I need to go pack up all my booze and my drugs and my paraphernalia and take them to a friend's house to hold for me for this detox, because I'm going to want them again when I get back. It was insane. Um, I like, you know, wanted 
to get better. I really just wanted to have a handle on it. It's not that I wanted to get sober. I just wanted to be able to drink and use drugs and not lose my stuff and not lose my memory of what happened that night. Um, so I did that. I took, I took a bunch of my stuff to my friend's house Said, Hey, I'm going to detox. I'll be back in a week. Um, let's party when I get out. And, uh, (laughs) so I went, it was miserable. I had never known anything about, um, DTs, um, the shakes, uh, withdrawal, nausea, the spins, all of those things. But I felt them every single day for that week that I was there. And then they let me out, um, with the expectation that I was going to go back to the outpatient and, I remember how much of a jerk I was in those group meetings. I'm a therapist now, by the way. So I, um, <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I work with people in addiction. So at this time, like looking back at how I was in those group therapy sessions, oh my gosh, I was a punk. I was that person that I would, uh, that would drive me crazy now as a therapist, um, because we would go around in a circle and check in and we would share how many days we had sober. And I would like, look at my watch, like a punk and say, uh, about 30 minutes. Like we've, you know, we've been here for about 30 minutes. So I'm about 30 minutes sober and man, I was just a pain in the butt. And I feel bad for all those people who were there with me, who were really trying because I was not really trying. Um, So (laughs) I, I ended up eventually like quitting the outpatient therapy with no success. I think maybe I had stopped using some harder stuff. Um, and that was satisfactory to me, um, because I was blacking out one or two nights a week from just alcohol instead of, you know, five or six nights a week from whatever I was using. So you felt like it was managing. It was good enough. Yeah. I wasn't like losing my wallet, like every single night of the week. I was like, um, I, you know, I had some memories of the parties I was going to. Um, yeah. So it was, it was good enough. And so from 18 to about 28 for about 10 years, um, I just continued to drink several nights a week, blackout, regret my hangovers, um, swear off alcohol. Every morning I woke up hungover just to start drinking again later that day, smoking weed every day. And it felt manageable because I was working. I did still have wonderful relationships with my family. Um, I was going to school. I was getting straight A's. I was getting degrees. Um, you know, I made it through, um, an associate's degree, two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree, all in active addiction. And it just felt like. That's just amazing. That's amazing. Blacking yeah. out a couple times a week. And that was acceptable. As yeah. you did all this. I think the worst part about it was when I was in my master's program, because I, at that point I had decided I wanted to be a counselor and I was starting to learn about drug and alcohol abuse and substance abuse counseling. Meanwhile, I'm sleeping about two or three hours a night because I'm partying every night and getting high before my grad classes. And I was making it through. So once again, no accountability. Um, It just, 
was positive reinforcement all the time. Wow. I can go out and get blackout drunk and use drugs and still come in and get the highest grade on the test or, the, or, you know, an A on my paper. And, um, I just kept feeling like I can keep this up. I can keep this up. Even though I was still having really terrible nights with really terrible consequences. Um, you know, I've had car crashes. I've driven drunk. I've driven up on curbs, you know, and thank goodness there were no people walking on those sidewalks those days. I mean, it was terrible. I just kept getting lucky and, you know, not everybody gets lucky, but I got lucky for a really long time until I decided to stop pressing my luck. Um, around the time that I met Bill, um, I was still big partier. Um, we had a, a huge group of friends that were all rock climbers and we partied together. Um, I think in the last year of my active addiction, um, that was after Bill and I had started dating and I got separated from my, um, ex-husband. It, my life was really falling apart <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so you had already been married and well, let's yeah. do this. I'm a little bit over 30 minutes. Let's just take a quick break and then we're going to come back. And then we're going to get into to more of your story, too. Okay, we are back. You were married before you met Bill. And we're just going to backtrack back to that a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So I got married when I was 20 years old. That was a relationship in many ways was very wonderful. And I will say that my addiction um, was maintained throughout that marriage, um, even though I wouldn't necessarily say that my ex was an addict. Um, he used drugs and alcohol, but not in the same way that I did. I would say he was, you know, what I would call a normal drug and alcohol user um, without life being, um, you know, broken up because of it. Um, and I would say that addiction had a lot to do with ending my marriage. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of, it was a lot of um, pain, I think, that I caused in that relationship um, because of being addicted to drugs and alcohol. And, you know, the main thing is that when I was using, I was not being my, my true self. Um, I felt like using helped me to be comfortable in my skin, but in reality, it, it changed me and made me be the person that I didn't want to be. Um, someone who lied, someone who was deceitful and ultimately was not a good partner. It certainly led to me wanting to get separated and then eventually divorce. When I met, when I met Bill, I was in this other relationship and, and we were all friends and we were all drinking partying all the time together. It's interesting to look back at that big group and see who, who were the true addicts and who were just having, you know, innocent fun and were not, you know, we're not the problem drinkers. Um, and it's clear to me now with my experience and knowledge as a therapist to look back and say, yeah, Bill was one of those people. <laughs> and I was one of those people. 
And um, you know, when we started dating, um, Bill and I, it was just a continuation of our, of how we were as friends. Um, we, it, now it was just like, wow, I've got a person that'll stay up till four in the morning where my ex would go to bed at two. Like when the bars close, you go home and go to bed like a normal person. But Bill, oh, goody, he wants to like stay up and drink some more after the bars close and get high until the wee hours of the morning. Um, so in a way, we, we made it worse for each other, I think, in that um, first year that we were together. And, uh, you know, we loved each other as friends. Um, and it's I can't and you're moving you're moving over towards bill now so mm -hmm. you you divorced you met bill while you were still married but then you got a divorce yeah mm -hmm. yeah we knew each other for like three or four years right before that yeah so i was kind of the the third wheel if you could say that between kira and her husband we would we would all be doing everything together you know going on trips and driving places but still we were always getting high everywhere we went and i'll bring it back like kind of to the beginning when we first met kira and i and her husband i remember her husband telling me that Kira's birthday is coming up and that one of our like other mutual friends invited us to go to her mountain house for her Kira's birthday. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. My birthday's coming up too. When's Kira's birthday? And he told me her birthday was November 8th and mine's the 7th of November. So we also share a birthday basically. And that was the, I remember that time specifically like that party at the house. Cause it was a small party. There was like six or seven people there, but once again, everybody else went to bed at like a normal time. And Kira and I were up until the sun came up. We just, we had to drink everything that was there. We had to smoke all the weed that we could. And I just remember being like, yes, I've got a partner in crime now. Like, this is cool. And yeah. it was, it was just did. like a, a mutual friendship, but it was like, this person gets me. We can do this together. I'd never met another person before who, when cleaning up a party, did not dump the empty, the, the half empty cans down the drain, but drank them. <laughs> So Bill and I were the cleanup crew at every party. And at the end of the night, you go around, pick up a can, it, like finish it. You didn't know who started it, but <laughs> so we finished gross. it. And, uh, you know, meeting Bill <laughs> sort of made me like, so oh, wow, I'm not the only one who does this gross secret thing in the middle of the night. I couldn't stand. I couldn't bear the thought of, of pouring, um, alcohol down the drain did you shake no it way. to make sure there were no cigarette butts did you ever learn to do that oh uh I, I learned that after of course drinking out of a <laughs> bottle that had spit and cigarette butts in it but you know, you know sometimes you just you just miss it and it just goes down the hatch and you swallow <laughs> a bunch of ash well i think i think i'll just like bring, bring us back to to um 
you know, our first year together and get to the point where we decided that we needed to get sober. So, so we were together for a year. It was just a continuation of our friendship, but yet we felt like, you know, wow, we're with someone else who can, um, you know, stay up late party, you know, it, it really could have gone off the rails and we're really lucky that somehow we, we found the, the track to, to get on in that first year, we had a couple of slip ups in our relationship. I'll speak just to mine, but I know Bill had one too, which was a, a scenario of infidelity, I suppose. You know, I was still really obsessed with being in like a cool crowd. And I had some like A-class friends who would go out in Philly to some, you know, high high class events and and party. And I loved being invited and welcome in that. And, you know, it was just a night of boozing, feeling really cool, feeling really in the in crowd that night. Like there was just so many things that could have gone wrong, like getting into speeding vehicles with people who were drunk, um, partying with a bunch of people who were unsafe, putting myself in really risky situations. And then having to, you know, I don't even know how I got home after that, but then having to tell Bill, because I was starting to, I was starting to realize that I didn't want to repeat the mistakes in my marriage and that I wanted to, um, you know, I had kind of made a promise to myself that, uh, that, that relationship had ended, but I didn't want to make the same mistakes. I didn't quite nail it down to the fact that drugs and alcohol were the reason. Um, it was more, you know, like I'm not a good person and I need to stop making these mistakes. And then, so after that night I had to tell Bill, which in my last relationship, I would have lied about it until maybe I got found out. Um, but I told him and watching him, um, deal with that, uh, was really hard. It was at that point that I think I had started trying to make little goals for myself around my drug use and drinking. Like I'm only going to drink one night a week. Um, and I failed week after week after week, but I was at least starting to try. Um, and I would also try to limit how much I drank. Um, I would make some kind of obscure, you know, number of, I'm going to drink this many beers, this many shots, you know, whatever. Um, and again, and I failed every single time. I wasn't able to do it. Um, and then I think we could zoom forward to when Bill decided he wanted to start seeing a therapist and the therapist demanded that he get clean and sober before they get into a therapeutic relationship together. And <laughs> I remember Bill coming home from his therapy session. Meanwhile, I am a therapist um, at the time. And he tells me what his therapist said. And I'm hold like, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's crazy. <laughs> you're still drinking and you're a therapist at the time too. Yeah. And uh -huh. you're just barely, hold it, hold it, hold it. Because we got to <laughs> stop here for a minute. Cause look, so moderation and some, I, you talk about, I'm sure you know a lot about moderation. So you were trying to moderate. Yeah. I was trying as a, a therapist as like an alcohol counselor therapist or so, so my first job, I was a therapist for 
kids, like three, my youngest client was three years old and my oldest client was 18. So um, at that time I didn't really have, I actually had zero clients that were struggling with substance abuse. I realized later in my first month of sobriety, actually, um, when I applied for a job in a facility that did both mental health and substance abuse, I was a month sober when I first started working there. And I realized in the first day that there was no way I would have ever been able to have done that job if I was still in active addiction because my very first client was a young girl with substance abuse issues. And I, and her life was so different than mine, but when she started talking about her using, I was like, wow. And I was a month sober, but I was like, wow, I, I am so glad that I'm just, I'm just a month ahead of this little girl really. And that, you know, and, and she helped me in a lot of ways, maintain my sobriety and in that very, you know, beginning stage, because, and now I was responsible. I was the therapist. I was supposed to be helping this little, this little precious little girl, um, you know, start her life in a safe and healthy way. And yeah, there, there's no way that you could, you could do that in in active addiction. Yeah. Well, Bill came home from his appointment with his therapist and said, uh, this is, this is what he said that I need to get clean and sober before he can start treating me. And I, I felt offended. (laughs) I felt like, who is this guy? How can he tell you how to live your life? How can he, you know, like I was just so judgmental, but I supported Bill and I wanted him to get the help that he needed. You know, I'm definitely in support of anybody getting therapy who needs it. So I encouraged him, like I gave him my blessing of like, yeah, go back. And I tried to like kind of swallow my judgment. Um, but in the, in the weeks following that, and you probably like Bill, you probably had like a couple more sessions with him. So it was just sort of solidifying this need to get clean and sober. Um, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, It was um, like the first meeting, you know, it was with him. It was like, all right, go do this, go get sober. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. How how would one even get sober? What does, what do those words mean? Never thought about that in my life. And he said, what did he say? I think he said, I'm speaking at a meeting tonight. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. Speaking at a meeting said, just show up at this place and walk in the door and you'll find me there. I was like, okay, okay. That, that sounds strange, but I'll I'll come. And I did, I walked in the door and I walked into, that was probably my second AA meeting at the time. My first one was because my neighbor, she had been through AA and she gave me some people's names. So I went to another one before that, but my therapist, I remember him, him talking in the group and him telling him his story. And I, I was shocked to hear his story because I had never heard of anybody getting sober before. That was just not a thing I ever thought of. So to hear his story, it made my story seem ridiculous and easy compared to his life and what he had gone through. So yeah, that was it. I remember that day and then I kind of started on my AA journey from there in the early days of sobriety. It was a really big foundation for me to get sober 
And there's a lot of stuff that I didn't like about AA, but I knew that getting sober was more important than the things I didn't like about what I was hearing in the room. So I just went to the rooms instead of going out every day. You know, it's like Friday night, what do you do? Well, you either go out and get drunk, do drugs, or you go sit in a room with other people and listen to everybody complain about how shitty their life is. And that is what I chose to do. And eventually, you know, you start feeling a little, I started feeling like better. I would share, I would cry and people would support you. And, you know, I I did that for a while and by myself and Kira, she, she did not like that in the beginning. She's definitely had some judgments and, you know, I did too, but I, I was swallowing those judgments because they were, it was my life. And, you know, that definitely caused some hard parts of our relationship in the beginning of our sobriety journey. Well, I guess, I, I think guess my timeline's a little messed up. But yeah, <laughs> I think it is too. I think I would have, I would have mentioned um, like the day you decided to get sober was New Year's Eve and that that was um, a shock to me who was a person who was still looking forward to going out and getting drunk like half the world on New Year's Eve and that you were having, you know, a crisis of identity that day when we were at your brother's house um, getting ready for the, the bike party. And that the next day I decided out of pure friendship and love and solidarity that I would be sober with you too for and at that point, when I had made that statement and commitment, it was like there was no long term commitment. It was purely like, you know, I will be I will stand in sober solidarity with you while you get through your struggle. Well, um, let's talk about December 31st, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> funny story. Funny story. So <clears throat> Kira and I, we we're really into riding our bicycles. Like we, we ride our bicycles everywhere, especially uh, where we lived in Westchester. We, you know, it was like, it was normal for me to ride 50 to 60 miles. Um, But her Kira, like she wasn't really into that, but eventually we started doing that together and, you know, we'd ride to the breweries and we'd smoke pot along the way. And it was, you know, it was fun. So we started getting into these bike parties, which happened in Philadelphia and Baltimore. And a bike party is kind of how it seems. It's a a bunch of people on bicycles riding around the city. And it's a big party, a bunch of people hooting and hollering, drinking beers. And we we did that for a while. You know, they happened every week. So we would travel to the city. Sometimes we'd ride our bikes 50 miles to the city enjoy the party and smoke and drink on our bike ride all the way home. And my brother who lived in Baltimore at the time, there's, we went to visit him for new year's, uh, new year's Eve. So there was a bike party, new year's Eve. And we, uh, or it was the day before Kira. What was it? When was that bike party? The day the before? bike party was on the Friday, December 30th, 2016. And that night, um, you did not drink. 
Right. I did. That was yeah. that was my last night of drinking. And that was when you first started acting weird. And we were with him for the weekend. So the next day my, was we were with my brother for the weekend. Yep. And and so the next day, Saturday was New Year's Eve. And we were all gearing up just to go down to the waterfront and watch the fireworks that day. But from like morning until almost midnight, New Year's Eve, um, Bill was in quite a state. <laughs> yeah, it, ha- it started that Friday um, during the bike party. Like we would go out and my brother and Kira were drinking. And I remember like I would ride and then we'd get to someplace. And I would, I remember specifically we got to a park. And everybody else kind of like went to one side of the park to drink and party. And I just went to the middle of the park at the grassy area. And I just like laid there and cried. I couldn't do anything else. I felt, I felt so, I don't even know what the word is. I, I really have no words to describe how I felt, but I just cried. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I couldn't really talk to anybody. I just, I felt so out of myself and that's how I was that whole night. I just, you know, the bike party would move on to a different spot. So I get on my bike, we'd ride, we get to the different spot where we were stopping and I would go and cry some more. And meanwhile, Kira and my brother are like checking on me and making sure I'm okay and going about their times, having fun. And it was a mess. And it's just, it, like she said, it continued to the next day. And so you had been going to AA meetings for a little while at this point, right? Was it like a couple months or a couple weeks? Um, I I think that's where my timeline is messed up here. Do you remember? Yeah, I do, do not think that you had gone to AA meetings at that point. That's why I was trying to backtrack because I thought it was important yeah. to share about when you decided to get sober. And then it was after the Baltimore trip. It was it was in the new year of 2017 that you started going to AA. I think you went to a meeting as soon as we got back from Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. I'm really bad with timelines. Not my thing. <laughs> too, That's why here's my timekeeper. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, no AA meetings, just like the idea of getting sober. And I, I committed to it. I was like, this is, this is it. I'm just not going to drink. I remember. Yeah. I remember passing on bowls and that was, that was it. So new year's Eve <clears throat> from the morning, I couldn't get out of bed. I just was laying there. If I wasn't hysterically crying, I was just staring at the ceiling with my eyes open and I couldn't move. I wanted nothing to do with anything. And it was freaking my brother and Kira out. It was freaking us both out a lot. I mean, if, if you're familiar with what the term catatonic means, that was Bill. Like going in between episodes of hysterical sobbing that was inconsolable to periods of just complete stiff body staring dissociative. It was terrifying. I actually thought he was potentially having a a real mental breakdown and he was like that all day and we were both terrified. And so there was no time for me to pregame at that point because I was just taking care of bill all day And it got to be 11 p.m. So it was literally all day of like, what's going on with Bill? Um, Bill's brother and I trying to um, soothe him, calm him down, get him to tell us what was going on, um, trying to understand what was happening. And around 11 p.m., 
Bill's brother, Tommy was like, I got to go because he had a new girlfriend at the time and they had new year's plans. And he's like, Tommy looked at me and was like, Kira, can you handle this? Like, I got to (laughs) go. Like we've been, we've been doing this all day. And uh, you know, you guys can just stay here if you want, but like, I got plans with my new girlfriend, like we're going out for new year's Eve. So I was like, yeah, go, go. Like, maybe we'll see you later. Um, and when it was just Bill and I, um, I decided like I needed to, he, he might've needed a, um, like a firmer touch. Um, cause all day we were kind of like, what's wrong, Bill? Like, you're okay. You know? So I, I kind of laid it out to him and I said, Hey, like, you've been in this house all day. Um, why don't we get out, go on our bikes. We're going to bomb that first hill. It's going to feel awesome. You're going to feel the rush and the fresh air. And I think you'll feel better. Um, and somehow he agreed to put his shoes on and get out. And, um, we got on our bikes, we bombed that big hill from his apartment down into the, um, the inner Harbor, and uh, we caught some fireworks, and that was my first New Year's sober since I was a teenager. Um, wow. And Bill, too, I'm assuming, right? Um, and so the next day, New Year's Day, um, January 1st, 2017, that was when I had made a statement to Bill. Well, we had kind of talked about it. because he, he had kind of gotten shaken out of the the state he was in, um, I think, you know, from that bike ride and getting out. So the next day he talked about it and he said, I think I'm going to be sober. And at that point I had said to him, okay, I'll, I'll be sober with you. But that was when, you know, I wasn't really making a long-term commitment. It was just a, uh, like, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll be sober with you for like a little bit or whatever. And, um, we, and then we drove back to Pennsylvania and I think that's when, um, Bill started going to some AA meetings and I I know you, you heard a little bit about that already. And, um, I was not going to AA meetings. I remember that. So this was the first week, first week of 2017 and Bill had been to probably two or three meetings in that first week. And, Um, I specifically remember the Friday night. So it was, um, it was a week after Bill's was a week after my last drink and, um, and Bill's day that he decided to be sober and, um, Bill. So he's got one day sober before you. He's got one day sober before. So his birthday is also one day before you. Yeah. Crazy. Well, well, two years. (laughs) He's two years older, so he's yeah, got but two years. The days, yeah. yeah, 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 the days. <laughs> yeah, so um, I remember it was a Friday night. It was uh, one week sober, and Bill went to an AA. Meet. He, like we were hanging out, we we had plans to hang out, but he's like, "I'm going to go to a meeting, this Friday night meeting. I've heard that it, there's a lot of people there," and I'm like, "Okay, good. I'll you know see ya. Like I'll see you when you get back." And he went. And I had no idea how long these meetings were. Um, I remember like looking it up on the internet to find out how long it was, um, when he'd be back. And I was like, I'm going to order a pizza. And um, so when he got back, the pizza was there and we sat on the couch with the pizza between us. And he was telling me a little bit about how the meeting went and something that somebody had shared that struck him in a way about his identity being wrapped up in being, um, 
someone who drinks. And while he was telling me about this revelation that he had in the meeting, I had like a bite of pizza in my mouth. Like I was enjoying it, like feeling good, no problems with a bite of pizza in my mouth. And then I just started, my face just went like, like it just melted. And I had the food in my mouth still, and I had to spit it out because it was at that point that I realized that I had a problem. Like that was the moment I realized that I had a problem. It was, you know, one week of sobriety for me. This is my second time around, so to speak, if you consider that time when I was 18 and I went to detox and like barely tried, but this time something clicked. And it was this idea of, is it necessary? Is it necessary for me to drink and to use drugs? Um, And like, why do I feel so attached to it? And at that point I started really using my counselor lens on myself and I could see that I had a problem and I, you know, I couldn't even swallow my food. I couldn't eat the rest of the pizza. Um, And that was the moment that I had decided I had a problem. It it wasn't, it didn't mean that I was 100% committed to a lifetime of sobriety, but it it was definitely the first time I was really looking in the mirror. And, and then I actually decided to go to a meeting after that, because I was like, whoa, Bill got some knowledge in that meeting. And, uh, you know, I don't even know if it affected him as much as it affected me when he was then telling me how it affected him. So he brought home some information from what somebody said, and then you heard it mm -hmm. with the pizza in your mouth. Yeah. And it was just like, like, I felt sick. I felt total. I could not chew. Um, I started crying and that was like, that was definitely when the mirror was held up and I was like, Whoa, I have a problem. Yeah. And I, that just tells me the power of a connection with addicts getting together and and discussing stuff right there, because I mean, you weren't even there and he brought it home to you and it had that big of a revelation on you. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I guess like I, I will tell somewhat of I, I think it's an interesting story because I remember it very clearly of my first meeting that I went to. It was a popular club. It was a Friday night. So this was the the next Friday night. So now I'm two weeks. Both Bill and I are both two weeks in. I decided that like Friday night was probably my biggest trigger to drink because um, it was starting off the weekend. And, you know, the thing that I did was go to the bar, go out to parties, go out to clubs. And so it was um second Friday in, and I decided it would not be a good idea if I was going to try to stay sober to be home. And Bill was planning on going to a meeting anyway. So I was like, all right, I'm going to come with you. Uh, We went and Bill took me in and we sat in the front row and someone passed me a book. And I'm like, I felt terrible. And I had never really suffered from anxiety in my life, but I was sweating like crazy. And I felt like the lights were way too bright and I just felt absolutely terrible. I felt like an imposter in a way being there. Um, and we, you know, we started out and like, you know, somebody said to open the book to a certain page and I was holding the book in my lap and my heart was just pounding. And then at a certain point I went to lift my like thumbs off the page. I think we were turning the page And my fingers left sweat marks in the book. Like it was wet. The book was really wet. 
And I was like, oh man, what is happening? And so I slammed the book, put it down and I walked outside and I like that room never felt so long um, than when I was trying to escape it as fast as possible and get out to the fresh air. And as soon as I got out and I, and I heard the door close, I just like, Oh, like bawling. I was bawling my eyes out and I don't even know what hit me. I think it was just seeing 40 people in a room on a Friday night where I assumed everyone was out drinking and that there were 40 people who, you know, regardless of how much sober time they had, they were not drinking at that moment. And that right there was a shock that I had never known that there were people who didn't drink especially on a Friday night. Like what? I'm not the only one trying to not drink. Like there's all these other people. And I got myself to stop crying and I eventually went back in and I got to hear a few stories and um, yeah, it just was really helpful in the beginning to know that I wasn't alone. And I think, um, you know, one of the biggest things that I believe now as a sober person is that the idea of sobriety really needs to be talked about a lot more. Um, it's not a stigma and keeping it in the dark is just keeping a lot more people in addiction. And so if you're sober and you're living a sober life and you're happy, um, or even if you're struggling in it, just tell people about it because there might be someone else who's wondering if it's possible for them. So for me, yeah, just seeing that there were other people that were trying to live a sober life really helped me feel like I could do it myself. That room was almost like a lighthouse, wasn't it? Where you could see, like, your life had been this, I'm a storm, basically. I mean, detoxing at 18 years old, a failed marriage with your, your alcohol. And then all of a sudden you go into this meeting you're leaving friggin' wet prints on a book. It, that, that was a lot of anxiety, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. A- anxiety that I'd never felt before. And, and probably because whenever I got anxious, I would drink or I would smoke or I would use something. And so it was I was covering up something that was there and not having those anxiety relievers. Um, it was all clear. I, I was exposed and raw and even as a, as a therapist, you were, yeah, yeah, right. Well, I'm a much better therapist now than you I are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's um take man. Thirty minutes can just fly by, can it? Yes, it can. I know. Let's take another break real quick, and then we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. And Kara, just two weeks, first AA meeting, and where are we going from here? <laughs> Well, um, I'd love to tell you about um, the the job that really made me into um, the the great counselor um, that I am today and working with people in addiction. And that all started with an invitation to go to an open house. Um, And believe it or not, this was Bill's old therapist who told him about the open house. And he knew I was a a counselor and um, that I might want to go check out this open house. And so when I... um, showed up that day, I kind of fell in love with the place. And I remember finding the director of the program 
and saying, um, can I get a job here? Like out of nowhere, she had no idea who I was. And, you know, she was super busy. She's hosting this big open house and she kind of brushed me off and just said, send me your resume. Like I'm really busy. And, um, I went home from that open house and I sent her my resume and she got back to me and she said, um, we, you know, we just started and we already have the, the therapist that we need, but we do need a meditation teacher. And I, um, had been teaching yoga and meditation. So she was like, you want to lead our meditation group? And I said, absolutely. I was just trying to get my foot in the door. And so she did want to set up an interview with me and I was about a month sober and I went in for this interview and I remember the first question being something like, so tell me about yourself. And um, in my, you know, complete insanity is what it felt at the moment. The first thing that I spit out was, well, I'm a month sober. And immediately I was like, no, why would I say that in an interview? Why would that be the first thing that I say about myself? Um, you know, I'm doing the like stupid, stupid, stupid thing. And I just sort of, you know, I froze um, after saying that because I'm just thinking, oh gosh, how do I come back from that? How do I go back to, you know, my education and my experience and all of these, you know, skills that I have. And, um, you know, believe it or not, I was, I was shocked by the response. And that was, um, oh, really? Um, I'm eight years sober myself. And, um, and that's great. And I was like, what? this is actually acceptable. And, and she also just offered to help me in any way. And, and, and I ended up getting um, the job, of course. So I remember leaving that day and so many of my preconceptions about what it meant to be sober um, were completely shaken down by that interview. Um, and this comes back to the whole destigmatizing sobriety and destigmatizing addiction. Um, in the fact that I was able to share in a job interview, something that was so vulnerable and what I thought was so embarrassing and so shameful and for it to be accepted, um, by the interviewer, um, as not only like something that's totally fine for this job and that it's something that, you know, I would get support in, but also that it would be an asset to me in the job. And, you know, I certainly discovered that later, um, but yeah, I started teaching a meditation group, a mindfulness group at this company, and it grew from there. I had a lot of different roles in that company, um, starting with the meditation teacher and then developing a therapeutic summer camp for teens with substance abuse and mental health issues, and then um, running a ton of experiential groups, adventure therapy, eventually becoming um, a supervisor and program director and really getting to decide um, you know, what treatment looked like for these teenagers that were struggling. Um, and yeah. Don't, um, don't forget to talk about the therapeutic chickens. Oh yeah. I also developed a therapeutic chicken program. Um, and that was really awesome. And, you know, it was really helpful for the kids in our program to just have a, a project that they could work on and, um, so is this an inpatient program for kids? It was a um, partial hospitalization program. So the kids did not stay overnight, but they came every day, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to sometimes 9 p.m. Um, and, and these were kids with addiction? Yeah, substance abuse and mental health. So we were about 50-50. 
in my experience, one thing that I've learned is that that 50% that came in as purely substance abuse, the reality was that they were suffering with a lot of mental health issues as well. And the substance abuse was just a symptom. I'm finding that out at 58 years old. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that you can teach kids this to help them out of it. So where are you at all this time, Bill W.? Um, where am I at? Going to meetings, uh, riding my bike. Are you guys like excited talking to each other while you're, um, while all this is unfolding? Yeah, it's, it's a really exciting and terrifying time all in the same. Um, we, Kira moved into Westchester at this point and, she had been like looking for a house or an apartment for a while. And the only apartment she found was like literally right behind my apartment. So we, we were neighbors and dating at that point. So that was really an interesting um, step in sobriety was, you know, we, we, we weren't living together yet, but we lived right next to each other, like a hundred feet from each other, which was, it was cool. Um, for me, especially because I, all my relationships, most of them had really been shallow, I guess, in the past, because there was so much addiction, you know, with the drugs and alcohol, but also like the porn addiction that, that really morphed me into someone that didn't, understand what an actual relationship should be. So, you know, there was just a lot of sexualizing women and not actually treating women like a a person. So throughout my years, like I was terrified of, and I had no idea about how to actually like live with someone. So when Kira and I started getting closer and closer, Um, you know, I knew the time was coming where we were going to move in together and this was a, a good step for me to, to be closer to her, but not, you know, I could still get my space. Um, so that was, that was good. And I say that, but when, like, I think about it, I still spent 90% of my time in her apartment. Why I paid for rent in my apartment, just a little bit down the road from hers. So, um, yeah, it was an exciting time. It really was. It was, it was a whole new world, just uncovering things every day, um, getting involved in the community. We, we kind of talked briefly about the therapeutic chickens that she had at her work. And this was something that she developed as a kind of a dream and sort of a, I'm going to say a joke, but it wasn't like a joke because that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to build a chicken coop at her work and she kind of like threw it at her boss in the, in the group that she worked with. And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. Go, go do it, go build a chicken coop. And we, she had like somebody else all lined up to, to build this chicken coop. But at the last minute that person backed out. So I have a background in construction and it just came down to like, 
my dad and myself and Kira, we, we built this chicken coop and. And we also enlisted local friends in recovery to help us build it. So yeah. I think that part was really special. So the, the idea was initially designed to be a experiential project for the kids in the camp and in which it very much was a part of that, but the heavy construction could not be done by the, the kids in the camp that I was running. So um, I needed help and I got Bill and his dad to help me with um, blueprinting and design. And then when it came down to setting up electric, we had a friend in recovery who's an electrician. When it came to just needing people to do some heavy lifting, we had a bunch of people in recovery that we called up and it was just amazing that this project was built by people in recovery. And then of course the kids in the camp came in and they did the, uh, you know, the minor um, construction, um, building a ladder for the chickens and painting and priming and, um, you know, eventually actually taking care of the chickens themselves. But yeah, this, this project was built completely out of people in recovery needing some service to do. Wow. This is just so cool. And then how long are you guys into your recovery when all this? Yeah, a year or two, I'm guessing. Because the chicken coop actually took a fair amount of time to build it. It was not a small chicken coop. It's not like you're going to go to Not if it has electricity. (laughs) No, no. This thing was like at the front, it was 10 feet high. It was like 12 to 15 feet long. Oh, it's friggin' uh, condos for chickens. As well. Yeah, oh, and this thing was huge. It had like this whole enclosed back run. Eventually, we ended up building. It was crazy. I mean, it was like a seven thousand dollar chicken coop. When you guys are going, you're about a year and a half into sobriety. Mm-hmm. Are you able to like at this time look back and see how your addiction has consumed you before, and you weren't living, and now, I mean, you're in your community giving back your lives are like totally different from where they were when you would just like bike together and stuff. But now you're really giving back. Did you notice that? Oh yeah. And we were, um, so we were still doing our bike rides, but we were biking to meetings and we were finding meetings that were farther and farther away just so that we could bike to them. And then we started to make friends with other people who rode their bikes because let's face it. A lot of people in recovery, don't have a license for various reasons and they right. ride bikes. So we started to become friends with all those people who rode bikes. And I started a ride to recovery group and we would meet together um, every week at a certain time. And we would ride 10 to 15 miles. And then we would end up at a meeting together. And it was just awesome. And we, that was when we really first started to combine the things that we've always loved and the things that were our passions and our hobbies and interests with recovery life. So, which brings us kind of in a way to you guys found out about Silvertown through my wife, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We were, um, I was in a, a, a group trying to, in a Facebook group, you know, giving back to the community in there and, trying to help people who are sober and who aren't happy. You know, that happens a lot where you get sober and then you have no idea what to do with your yourself. And we, we have a business where that is what we are helping people do is we're helping them transition from drugs and alcohol, 
as their their hobby per se, their life into finding out what it is that they want to do, like who they actually want to become as a, as a person, you know, like regardless of sobriety or not, like who you want to become, what do you want to do? How do you want people to see you? What do you want to do on the weekends? You know, what makes you happy? What are your goals? What are your dreams? And, and that's how I, I came upon the podcast uh, through your wife was me posting in some groups, talking to some people about, you know, different things that they could do, different ways that they could help themselves look at themselves and figure out what direction they want to go. And your wife said, Hey, uh, I got this husband named Drifter and he does this podcast and you know, your story sounds cool because the post was about how my, how I was as an addict, you know, kind of my, my hero's journey as they call it from addiction to, us here and I hiking 2,200 miles from Georgia to Maine on the Appalachian Trail. And then once we finished that, we hopped right on our bicycles and rode from Bar Harbor, Maine to San Diego, California. My wife came in. She's like, oh my gosh, this guy, Bill, he just, he just hiked the Appalachian Trail and then biked across America. I'm like, no kidding. And oh, yeah, and he's sober, too, you know, yeah. and I guess she didn't really know about you, Kira. Right. And I'm, I'm like, that's really cool. And she's like, well, he wants to tell his story. And I'm like, well, that's great. Let's get a hold of him and, give, you know, get a hold of me through the Sobertown podcast Gmail account. Then I read your story. So let's get to this part, because I think it's really cool. What brought you guys first? You decided to walk the Appalachian Trail, right? Yeah. So Kira and I, in our sobriety, we started, we, it was really hard at first to do the things that we always used to do because those things always included drugs and alcohol. So an example would be, and this kind of leads into it, you know, we go on a bike ride, but you stop for a break on a 50 mile bike ride, you know, you stop at 20 miles. Well, normal people like sit down, eat lunch and take a drink. Well, we would find like a nice shady spot where there aren't people and we would smoke a bowl. Like that's how our life was in addiction. Probably because we'd be riding to a brewery to get drunk and that's how it was. So in recovery that doing those same things that we used to love were really, really difficult. So as, as the years went on, we started more and more riding again and going on hikes again, because in Pennsylvania, where we live, we're about an hour from any section of the Appalachian Trail. There's like 300 miles. It kind of cuts the state on a diagonal. So we started hiking the Appalachian Trail on the weekends. You know, we'd go out and do like 15 miles and come back home. And it was, it was hard for us because the, the long car rides there, it was like, well, we'd be smoking drugs in the car ride. And, you know, it was just, it was this transition for us. And eventually uh, on Christmas, I guess, Pierre, what year was that? Um, probably would have been 2018. So we were yes. about two years sober and we went hiking on Christmas day. And I think 
part of the conversation led to where it always went, which was, wouldn't it be cool one day to hike the entire Appalachian trail or like one day we're going to hike the whole Appalachian trail. But for some reason that day we had reached a threshold of making those statements towards each other. And it was like, no, we only have one life to live. Um, addiction has taught us that life can end at any moment and that we've gotten lucky to make it this far. And we need to start taking control of our dreams and the things that we want to do. And we've been pretty successful in that for two years. I mean, so many opportunities have been coming to us in sobriety that, um, you know, we had no idea were, were gifts waiting for us until we were sober. And on this day, Christmas, um, we decided that we were going to take whatever step was first to make that dream of hiking the Appalachian trail a reality. And we literally went home and I just remember getting on the computer and started to Google. And I think the first thing to figure out was when we would do it. And, um, I found out that typically people start in the winter, late winter, spring, you know, March, April, and finish around October. And since it was Christmas at the time, there was no way that we could plan, prepare, save, train to go that spring. So we, we set a date for March, 2020. And at that point it was like, okay, well, what's the next step? You know, what kind of training do we need? What kind of gear, how much money do we need to save? Um, you know, how much notice do I need to give to work before I can take off for six months? And we just made it happen. So I read Bill that you had a someday bucket and so that's where everything turned into, let's do this now, pretty much, right? Yeah, Kira and I both have like our someday, our dream bucket, and it, it was always full. That bucket just, it just kept getting more full and more full. It was basically overflowing with things to do. And in active addiction, that's all I would do. I would just fill it up. Like, oh man, this thing is awesome. I'm going to go do it. But then... There was an example where I said I was going to go do something and then I never did it. I never even made a plan. I never started. It was just, it was an empty, empty threat or an empty dream, I guess. And Kira and I both had the same dream for growing up from childhood to, to hike the Appalachian trail. So yeah, it was just, it was time, you know, we've been through so much in recovery and it was just, it was time to, to do something with our lives that we always wanted to do because you only got one life. Life is short. And this is just what, what we wanted to do. We wanted to change our lives and see what was on the other side. And in recovery, you can find these moments too. And you plan, I mean, so that hike it's 2,200 miles. I read, right. And it's, yeah. it took you six months. Yeah. Five and, five and a half months. Yeah started on March, March 3rd in Georgia. We got a plane from Philadelphia down to Atlanta. And then we got hit, got on a train and then we walked from the train station to an REI and then somebody picked us up and they drove us to the, the start of the trail on March, March 3rd, March 4th. And we were, we were in the airports and, you know, you'd see some people wearing masks and we were like, wow, this is, why are people wearing masks? This is not necessary because COVID wasn't even, it was barely a thing in the beginning of March, 2020. So we got on the trail and that was it. Our lives were packed up. 
our our apartment that we lived in our house that we lived in our lease was up so we put everything we had in one of those storage pods so all of our belongings were in a storage pod tucked away somewhere and everything we had for the next six months was in our backpacks wow as covid was beginning yeah a weekend for our hike was when everything started closing down that first week we had our cell phones off you know, airplane mode. We weren't really sure about like how much battery use we could have. And we really just wanted to disconnect. I mean, that's part of what the hike was all about. And so we weren't checking the news, checking messages for that first week. And then our first resupply in a town off the trail, um, turn on the phone, turn on the news. And we were like, what is happening? Everything was closing down. The company that I'd worked for had closed and they were trying to switch to virtual, um, you know, my mom and my sister are both in medical care. And so they were talking about what that was like. And, you know, wow, it was really dumped on us um, really fast. And um, a lot of people left the trail um, to go home. But since our home was the greater Philadelphia area, it was a pretty dangerous place in early COVID. Um, We spent a few days to deliberate whether or not we should go home or not. And we decided that since we don't have a place to go back to, leaving, taking public transportation, and then trying to find an apartment in the midst of a quarantine was not the best decision. And we decided to keep going. And, you know, we were isolated in the woods and the mountains anyway. So it worked out for us. That's definitely social distancing. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) There were were days we didn't see another person. So. Yeah. So six months out there, I'm sure there's just a numerable amount of adventures that you had out there too, where somebody came on somebody and they had beer, were setting up a campsite and had their beer and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, you know, the, the trail teaches you a lot about expectations and judgments. So within like the first week and a half, you know, like you, you always know, you always hear, I guess, if you're kind of connected to the Appalachian trail that, there's, there's like a couple crowds. There's, well, there is a crowd that's the party crowd and all they do is drink and do drugs and have a really good time. Um, and we, we weren't a part of that, which was really different for us. And from the beginning, you could see where those, those parties were, where the people were drinking. But I remember specifically when we walked out of Hot Springs, North Carolina, we got to our, our campsite and we set up, we were kind of there early and nobody was really set up. There's like maybe a few people there so far. And this one individual, he set up his tent next to us and all I hear is clanging of bottles. And I'm like, what is that noise? We're like 15 miles from a road or anything and go outside the tent, see what's up. He's got a case of Corona. He, he hiked out a case of Corona and I just remember thinking how that would have been us. Like we would have loaded up in the town on the beers that we could find because as an addict, I loved drinking all the fancy beers from all the different local breweries and all the different towns. So like that would have been me. I would have been, I would have had a backpack full of liquid and it wouldn't have been to hydrate. It would have been to get drunk. And seeing him was, was really, it made me very happy that, we weren't being 
controlled by that need to get drunk. And because that would suck, you know, a case of Corona, even a 12 pack Corona, that's got to weigh six or seven pounds. And I don't want to carry six or seven pounds on my back unless I have to. Right. You have to plan what you're going to be putting on your back to carry it uh, from one town to the next, where, wherever you're going to resupply basically. Right. Yeah. And then you got to carry those empty beer bottles out with you too. So they just don't go away. You have to bring them to a trash can. (laughs) So, you know, that was really interesting, like seeing that person. And I was very grateful to be able to reflect on him as we were as sober people, but the expectation or the judgment, I guess, was like, wow, this person is, is definitely a drunk. They probably got drinking problems. And, you know, you pass that judgment on people, at least I was. And, you know, judgments are dangerous things because you, you could be missing out on someone great just because you think you know them. And as it turns out, after, you know, thousands of miles with being near this person, we actually were like, we became really good friends with them. And sure, like him and his friends, they like to drink and all, but like, that was just who they were. That was the part of life they were in at that time during the trail. And that was fine. They never bothered us. Like they were chill. They were fun. They were great hikers. They were great friends. And I always remember like those moments with them, even when they were drinking, like whatever, that was just who they were. You know, that's a big part too, because a lot, there's a lot of uh, individuals afraid to go into social settings where there's alcohol involved. And here you guys are on the Appalachian Trail. You're, you're sober. And it was okay that somebody was over there doing their own thing and you didn't have to participate. You can continue to, to do your own thing. I think that's just badass. And that hopefully some other people can learn from that. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a beautiful thing because you get a look at them having fun, whether or not they're like an addict, they have, they have a problem or whatever. You get a look at them and they're having fun. And I, I'm just grateful to be able to like interact with them as long as they're you know, not belligerent. If they're belligerent, you, you just walk away because nobody wants to be around that type of person. But they're funny. People are funny, whether they're drunk or not. Like, And it's, they're just people. That's what it comes down to. You're right. And then that's an opportunity also for those of us in recovery to be, and I, we've talked a lot about this, Elaine and this miss brought it up about being a lighthouse because Mm -hmm. there could be somebody that's further on in their addiction where it's an issue and they're seeing you two sober Mm -hmm. doing this Appalachian trail. And they're like, wow, how are they doing? Because you guys didn't even know that it was possible to do things sober And then somebody else gets to see you guys um, sober through this. So you guys get all the way to the end of the Appalachian Trail. And what did you decide to do then? Well, it happened like, I don't know, probably like halfway through the Appalachian Trail or the AT as it's known. We, we, we like to go big or go home. Hence our, our addictions and drinking all the beers and all that good stuff. But uh, we were like, well, what can make this crazier? What can make this trip even better? And we decided to empty out our our biggest dreams on our bucket list. And we decided to 
when we were done the Appalachian Trail, we were going to ride our bikes from Bar Harbor, Maine. The Appalachian Trail ends in Maine and Bar Harbor's in Maine. You know, they're probably a couple hundred miles away from each other. But we're going to ride our bikes from Maine all the way to San Diego, California when we finished. Yeah, coast to coast was always in the bucket list. And um, something about all of the confidence that we had gained from hiking the Appalachian Trail with a combination of is the world ending because of COVID right. uh, towards the end. Yeah. Towards the end of that trip, we were like, you know what? We really need to like, let's pick something else out of the someday bucket and do it now. Um, you know, like it, it felt right. It felt like it was very thrilling as an idea for a new adventure at the end of that whole thing. And yeah, we decided to go for it and it was super awesome. Well, <laughs> Let's take a break. Can you believe another half hour has already burned through? And then let's get to that part of biking across America from friggin' Maine to San Diego. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay, so you guys, while you were walking the Appalachian Trail, were talking about helping people coming out of recovery that don't know what to do. So why don't you explain that a little bit? Yeah, Kira, you wanna you wanna go for it? Sure. Um, well, having 2,200 miles to walk and talk and think about things. Um, it's amazing what kind of creativity opens up and how many ideas that you have. And in addition to that, the people that we meet, it was very clear how many people were struggling in, in their lives that were on the trail and that used the trail as a source of healing and, and self-discovery. Um, so initially we had this idea that we wanted to help other people complete their dream of hiking the Appalachian trail. Um, and, you know, we sort of mold that idea around, um, during that trip and during our bike ride across the country. But then we started to realize that that was a dream that both Bill and I shared, but that isn't, it's very specific and that. While there are lots of people who dream to through hike the Appalachian Trail, um, people have all kinds of dreams. And in recovery, um, the thing that we wanted to focus on was helping people become the next best version of themselves as a sober person, um, whether that means rediscovering who you were before that you lost in your addiction or uncovering someone that you've never even met because your addiction has been a part of who you were for so long. Um, so that's what we're doing now is we're helping adults in recovery uncover what they want out of their life, who they want to be. Um, so beyond just getting sober, like really living a successful life in recovery. And we've met so many people since we've been sober who really struggle with that. And we've been very fortunate to have had a lot of success in discovering who we want to be and living our best lives and living out our bucket list. And so we really want to help other people. Um, we meet people all the time who say, oh, I wish I could be like you. I wish I could do what you do. And I just want to reach out and say, you can. And the idea for this business is really about finding a way that we can help people not only see that they can live the life that they want as a sober person, but help them be accountable on the way. And then you have 
all the qualifications with your education to help these people too, which is just really cool. Yeah. So I'm a licensed professional therapist and um, also a clinical adventure therapist, a yoga and meditation teacher. And I've been counseling people in addiction um, since I was one month sober. So four years and six months. Bill, you can't get away with shit, huh? No, you try. Yeah, you try to do your mind goes somewhere a little bit funny. She's like, get on the couch. You know, Bill's Bill's pretty much a therapist by proxy now. I don't know if the law would recognize him, but (laughs) all the language and all the tools. And, you know, if you didn't know it, you'd assume he was a therapist, too, because he's just so knowledgeable. And I think I'm a pretty good trainer. So right. And it probably started right there with that chicken coop, huh? (laughs) Yeah, that's when he really got um, involved in my work um, because I needed his help with that. And then he got to be there. Um, There were a few days that I even brought him in to help me with some of my groups with the teens. Um, So I could have him supervise some of the kids like using a drill for the first time while I managed the kids that were more in crisis. (laughs) It's just so cool to see how all of this has evolved for you guys. Yeah. I mean, from... You going to that meeting, Bill, bringing yeah. that home to her and getting her pizza stuck in her mouth <laughs> to, um, I mean, just the whole thing, how it's all evolved. And then you're, you're walking the Appalachian Trail and you're thinking of, uh, you know, just helping people walk the trail where that involved to where you can help people in their lives. Because I see a lot where people don't know what to do with their lives and mm-hmm. you are going to, you're offering a service to help them. And then you guys get to the end of the Appalachian trail and you see that the world just going crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're like, let's keep doing the someday bucket list. And bam, you're on your way across America. So that took, I mean, you had to have planned that as you were going across the Appalachian trail too, right? In a way. I mean, in the so before we even set foot on the Appalachian Trail, there was a little bit of an idea to include bike riding in some fashion. So it initially started as a six month leave from home. And we thought, hey, if we finish the trail in less than six months, let's ride our bikes home to Pennsylvania from Maine. That would be super cool. And nobody does that. Nobody rides their bike home from the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. So that's where it started. But then when we actually got on the trail and as months went on with COVID and just reprioritizing in our own lives, we thought that was the whole like, let's go big or go home thing. It was like we were already planning to do a bike ride. It was just going to be from Maine to Pennsylvania. But hey, let's go all the way to the West Coast. Wouldn't that be cool? So that's when we decided to make it all the way. Wow. I, I, I bet you guys have wonderful pictures of all this, this ride, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tons and tons of pictures. So tell us some of your adventures going across America. That just had to been. Uh, it was it was so different. I mean, on the Appalachian Trail, you're in the remote wilderness of the East Coast of the Appalachian Trails, and you know, it's just, it's pristine. There's no cars, 
during COVID, there's no people, the national parks are closed. So there's less people than there's ever been in like a hundred years in the national parks. So there's just no one, the animals are out proliferating, proliferating and just having a great time. You guys are like Lewis and Clark, huh? <laughs> oh, that's what it, it was like. Every childhood dream I ever imagined coming true with COVID and the Appalachian trail. Like I know a lot of people got sick and ill, but like for us, our experience was, a world that was untouched and where humans were not because everybody was stuck in their house while we were walking through the woods. So that was yeah. like, that was a beautiful, beautiful moment. That'll never happen again. I'm sure. Unless we have another pandemic and then you get on the bike and now you are on the road <laughs> The road with people personal with mortality every single second, every single second. You're like, all right, I could die right now. This is crazy. And then another big truck comes by. You're like, wow, I didn't die. This is crazy. And it just kept happening and happening. Like it was just normal traffic. But when a tractor trailer passes you by for the first time in six months, it sounds frightening. And, and a lot of those roads are, I mean, there's not a lot of room for bikes on a lot of these. I'm sure you were on like highways and, and state routes and stuff, not just probably whatever route you had to take. So you didn't really have a lot of bike lane, did you? The, the East Coast. So for Maine, basically, if you look at a map for Maine, we went straight down the coast of the eastern seaboard to Philadelphia. And there is a designated trail called the East Coast Greenway. And it is a trail in the fact that it is a series of connected roads and rail trails. So if you don't know what a rail trail is, it's where the railroad company used to have their trains, but that company is no longer in business. So the rail, the rail itself, the right-of-way has been abandoned and states and counties are turning these right-of-ways into paved and unpaved trails. So they're, they're flat and they're straight most of the time. So they're great for biking. So that's what the East Coast Greenway is. It's a connection of rail trails and roadway trails and Sometimes those roadway sections are terrible. Um, other times they're great. Other times you just have a shoulder, which is okay. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a mix. It was a mix going from Maine down to Philadelphia. And luckily there are a lot of rail trails. You know, there was probably two to 300 miles of rail trails in that section. So that was really beautiful because once again, you're just, you're in the woods more, more or less, and you're not on the road. So that was really, really fun. Yeah. It was like, I remember the first day we got on the road and all I could smell was the emissions from cars and diesel fumes. And it was, it would choke you. And like now big truck passes you by, you don't even, I don't even smell it, but when you're living in the woods in pristine, clean air, and then switching to the polluted air of, of a diesel truck. Oh, that was terrifying. Just gross. <laughs> and then you get some of the guys that have their souped up diesel engines that want to just blow by you and black smoke you. Did you ever have that? 
Yeah, yep. we we have been. Uh, they call it coal rolling, as they <laughs> say. We've been coal rolled a few times before. Not that exciting. Very It'll dangerous. For a lot of beautiful places on the cross country tour. I mean, we rode through Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Um, we took a like the most gravelly route through the state of Virginia. Um, then we rode the Natchez Trace Parkway, which is a national park that takes you from Nashville, Tennessee to Natchez, Mississippi on one road with no stoplights um, and no, no traffic. traffic. Yeah. Then we rode west from there on what's called the Southern Tier Bicycle Route through Louisiana, Texas. We were in Texas for a month. Um, when we got out to West Texas, we took a detour through Big Bend National Park, got stuck in the desert with no water, had a little survival situation there. And then we rode up and over the highest point um, on our cross-country route in New Mexico and got snowed on um, at Emory Pass in New Mexico, um, rode through Arizona, and finally... That's out- where I'm at. What part of Arizona did you go through? Um, we went um, through... Like so, we hit um, Arizona in the southeastern portion, went to Tucson, and then we went straight north to Phoenix. In Phoenix, I actually met up with an old high school buddy, um, someone that I shared a lab desk in tenth grade biology, and is now sober. And we got to go to a meeting at his house in Phoenix. How um, cool is that? It was oh, awesome. It was so cool. It was so cool. And then yeah, and then we continued on our way <laughs> on into San Diego. Yep. Which is one heck of a, if anybody's driven from Phoenix to San Diego, you guys got some mountains to climb yes. and drop down. Well, I mean, the whole, the whole route, just, that's just amazing. I, you guys both have to be certified iron asses by now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, um, yeah, it, we've got really good seats, bike seats. So they help <laughs> a lot. Yeah, they do. So yeah. you guys get to the end. What's happened now? since you've completed all this, you're back home, um, still sober and <laughs> you're, um, you're starting to your, your business. And so what's life like right now? Well, we're not home. We are in Florida. Um, this is where we ended up. So we're right outside of Daytona between Daytona and Orlando, Florida. And we spend our days walking barefoot on the beach <laughs> Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, our, our life has changed a lot. Um, since we finished, we have, when we were on the Appalachian Trail, there's another long trail called the Vermont Long Trail. And that is actually the oldest long trail in the country. That's the original trail. And it spans the length of Vermont. It's 300 miles just shy of 300 miles and the first 100 miles is actually on the Appalachian Trail as well so we hiked the first 100 miles of the long trail while we were hiking the Appalachian Trail but we made a vow when we were on the AT to come back and finish the long trail which was like 170 or 180 miles so we just finished hiking the Vermont Long Trail like last month, I guess. Yeah. So, so we knocked that off our bucket list and that was. So you guys Appalachian trail across Mm -hmm. the country on bikes and then Mm -hmm. came back 
for the long trail. Yeah. 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 But even in the middle of that, I knocked off another bucket list item of riding over 200 miles in a day on my bicycle. So I rode from the East coast of Florida to the West coast of Florida in 18 hours. It's 210 miles. Wow. Yeah. We just, we, we've got like, our buckets are empty now. <laughs> Not quite, but <laughs> we, yeah. so one of the things that um, has worked for Bill and I to stay on track in our recovery and living the best lives that we can is by getting a whiteboard and writing out goals, dreams, um, achievements that we want to have a part of our lives. And that might include mental goals, physical goals. So different adventures that we want to take different trips that we want to take, but also financial goals, family goals, and, um, the type of mindset that we want to have. And so that's just one thing that has worked for us. And yeah, since we've been sober, we've just been crossing those things off the list. And since we've gotten back from hiking the Appalachian Trail, hiking across the country, we've had to erase those things and add new things. And it's just a constant evolution and uncovering of life getting better and better. And so part of our business is helping people first identify what are the things that they value in their lives? What do they want to achieve? How do they want to be seen by the people that matter most to them? And then looking at where they are now, and maybe they're recently sober, and that's a huge achievement, but where do you go from there? Um, part of sobriety in the various traditions, the various um, programs that you can do is getting into service, having connection with other um, sober people. Um, but in addition to that, we want to add a life of purpose with direction. And we want to help people stay accountable to what they want, set up systems in their lives so that they can continue to grow and develop and heal if that might be part of it. And then when they get there, you know, what are they going to do next? Um, figure out, you know, not only how to maintain happiness and contentment and fulfillment and joy in their lives, but to allow it to continue to grow and get bigger and better. And, you know, maybe find a way that they can be of service and pass it on. And, you know, we know that that's a part of a lot of traditions too, is being a mentor or a sponsor or finding another way to give back and just to continue to to help heal people who are suffering from addiction in, in whatever way that they can. And, you know, it's amazing. Like we were talking just a minute ago um, during a pause that just like um, in the beginning with your chicken coop and everybody rallying around to get the chicken coop done, then with Sober Town podcast, everybody rallying around, to uh, create this and the podcast and the website, man, that's what's really cool about sobriety mm -hmm. that um, we come together. It's, it's like a huge village out there, isn't it? It's just mm -hmm. people in their own little communities rallying around and, and giving back. And you guys offer a really cool service and you guys still haven't even made it home. That's what you were saying, right? Bill? <laughs> Yeah, we're we're stuck in Florida, apparently. <laughs> I mean, 
but uh, of course, this has got to be by choice. Did you decide to move to Florida? Yeah, um, we're, we're loving it here and we're yeah. starting to develop a community here. But at, when we left Pennsylvania to hike the Appalachian Trail, we assumed we'd be returning home. But, you know, life changes and different opportunities arrive. And yeah, you just got to take take the new path if it comes before you. We have a a lady that's not too. How far is Orlando from you guys? About an hour. So we have a lady that's real close to a couple ladies close to you that's uh, from the IAS, and they both told their stories. Rags and Molly. I mean, there's there's just like, what the hell is going on in Florida where everybody wants to get in silver and wants to be in Florida? <laughs> everybody come, everybody comes to Florida because it's warm. Yeah, the, it, sun, the sun is out all the time, and there's yeah. water. Arizona's warm too, and it's got sun, but there's no water there. That's the problem. <laughs> right, right. There's not a lot of water here. You got to go to a man-made lake to get um, anything there. So, are you you're building more of recovery support around you guys too, right where you're at? Yeah, we're we're getting involved with uh, our local yoga community. That's where we've always well that's where i have started to find a, a nice community kira has been involved in yoga she's a yoga teacher um she teaches yoga and therapy but that that's been our, the community that we're currently really getting involved in is our local yoga studio and helping them with everything we can giving back and just helping with that spreading the, the word of their business, you know, because, you know, yoga is not just a place for Instagram and stretchy pants. Like it is a place for self-reflection and a place to be with yourself and to breathe through the, the hard points of your life and to be able to reflect on what you think is terrible and to, to look at it through a different lens. So it's always really important for me to get people into a yoga studio at some point during their recovery so they can see what it really is versus what Instagram wants it to look like. Yeah. Yoga. You're doing yoga yourself then, Bill? Yeah. I've been doing yoga for four or five years. I don't even know if I can freaking bet. I tried to do something where I had to sit and my legs didn't even like fold that way. Just a basic. (laughs) <laughs> you showed up, man. That's, that's the biggest thing. And that's like, that's what a lot of people have this misconception. Like you got to be able to bend, you got to be able to do that. And no, man, you just got to show up. You got to show up and just try. And eventually you'll get to some place that you've never been before. And that's why yoga is very relatable to life because you're not going to be who you want to be the first time you do it. It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of hard work to get you there. But after a while of you showing up over and over and over again, you're going to be bent over and your legs going to be over your head. And you'll be like, wow, how did I get here? Like, what what happened? Yeah, well, that's where I, I was at. My legs were over my head. My head was up my butt. And I'm just barely trying to learn how to get it out of there, right? That was a good one. Um, but here, let me take a break, and then we'll come right back for our final episode. Okay, we're back, and I just want to kind of wrap this up and let both of you kind of tell where you're at in your sobriety now. And um, let's go from there. Who wants to start? I'll start. 
So sobriety now, what does it look like for me? Um, well, one thing that I am working on is my relationship with food. That That's where my, my addiction is currently showing up. And I mean, it's, it's always showed up in food for me as well. Like I'd be the guy that eats two entrees at dinner and I'm like really proud about it because I also had two appetizers and dessert. And, you know, that's like great. And people are, you know, they've kind of gotten to know us that way. And we're like, Oh yeah, we do all this like cardio and we're always doing the stuff we deserve to eat all this food. But after hiking 2200 miles and riding 5400 miles you really get a grip on what your body actually needs to survive doing all that physical activity and it is very rarely eating two entrees two appetizers and a dessert so now for me it's just like at dinner time we eat what the package suggests, which is one portion per person. And that that's really hard. You know, it's really hard to, to eat what it tells you to eat. And we've actually gotten into the, you know, those meal plans like blue apron and green, whatever green chef, where they ship you the food to your door. And, you know, it's really nice because the food is super varied and you get to cook it and you get to do things, you get to follow the instructions. So it's this whole experience of cooking your own food that always tastes good because it's really easy to follow their directions. But in the end, I am not feeling bad about myself because I just ate seven portions of a meal. I ate what is meant to be eaten for a regular person. So that's kind of where my recovery is at today. That's like where it shows up. So I have the same issue. In fact, I dove off my roof into our above ground pool two days ago wow. in my by choice. In, by choice. I, right. I used to do, I used to do flips off my roof into the pool, nice. Yeah, but my belly's gotten so big uh, that my son made a video of it uh, and I hadn't done it for a while. And then I see this old guy with his big belly falling into the pool. I'm like, I've got to do something about that. And I've had the same issue. I went from alcohol and to, just whatever looks good sitting around me. So I'm kind of where you're at in my recovery too, of like cutting back on my food in the last three days, I think I've lost six pounds. I don't know if I, I'm overdoing it, but I've really just chopped down to salads or yesterday we had steaks with all the kids over. I ate a salad. So that's about where I'm at right now. That's so cool. Do you, you don't have the, like with food, at least we don't wake up with all the shame, guilt, and remorse. Now that you're in your recovery, you don't have any of that anymore, do you? I, I do. But the food, the food thing is still something where that, that'll come up in the shame and the remorse because sometimes we'll get a pizza. Well, sometimes we'll get Domino's, but we'll get two pizzas for two people and we'll eat them both. And at the end, it's like, there's that shame that comes up in the remorse of like, man, I feel like crap. My belly hurts. Why did I just eat 7,000 calories of a pizza? And yeah, I mean, that shame, it's still there because I look at myself in the mirror and I judge, I judge what I look like because 
that judgment in my mind, I'm still like 19 years old, 20 years old. And then I look in the mirror and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm not 19 years old. I'm 35. And I don't look like I think I should look like, and there's that shame and that judgment, but yeah, it's, it's something that once again, yoga helps me work through that because I look at myself in the mirror during yoga and I, I feel that, that shame. And it's like, well, it's okay. This is just who you are right now. If you want to change, you will change. And you got to set the, ex- I have to set the expectation that like, maybe this is just my body at 35 years old. I am not 20 years old anymore. I, that's maybe this is just who I am. And if that is that, that's okay. But I'm going to keep doing the things that help me get to where I want to be. You know, I have these small, measurable, attainable, realistic, time-bound steps to get me to my goal or how I want to feel or my dream. And, you know, eating one portion per meal is my goal. You've um, come a long ways, Bill W., in your your recovery. And that's really cool. And I'm just really glad to meet you. Kara, where are you at? Um, So I'm in a really comfortable place in my recovery. And I'm very grateful to be where I am today you know, through the telling of my story, you know, I've been a pretty successful person for most of my life and I have achieved a lot of things, but all of those things were really superficial. And I was always in a really dark place in my active addiction. And the one thing that I can say now is that I'm in a very comfortable place now with my mental health under control and feeling an acceptance of myself and where I've been in the past and a lot of motivation and excitement about what's left for me in this life. And um, early on in sobriety, I realized that in, in order to live a life that I've never lived before. I have to start doing things I've never done before, even if they're really hard. And that started with just not picking up a drink, but it turned into a lot of other steps outside of my comfort zone, stepping into things that felt really, really uncomfortable and hard. And through those actions over the past four and a half years, I've become stronger than I could have ever hoped for myself, um, and more capable. And, you know, I really feel in many ways, like a superhero, um, for myself and that, you know, my powers just keep getting stronger the longer I stay sober. Um, so for me, it's just a daily maintenance of, um, getting enough sleep and meditating and having a healthy breakfast, drinking plenty of water, doing all of those things, um, to be well-rounded and healthy, um, maintaining positive social connections and, um, giving back. And that's one thing that I'm really focused on today. Um, because for so many years I had to be so self-absorbed because I mean, we're self-absorbed a lot in our addiction, but then in early sobriety, um, like you need to take care of yourself. And sometimes for many people, early sobriety is the first time they've ever taken care of themselves. And so for me, it took many years of just really honing in on self-care and learning to love myself 
um, developing healthy routines. And now I'm at a place where that is really strong and really stable. And I just want to share it with others. And, you know, it's going to look different for each person that I meet, but that is my goal is to share the systems that have worked for me, um, the tools that I found helpful. And as a therapist, different tools that have helped different people that I've worked with. And I just want to help people have the life that they want. I want people to have what I have. I want to share that with other people. I'm very grateful for all of the people that have helped me all of the, like, you know, whether it's just a little word of wisdom or a book that I read or a podcast I listened to, um, that inspired me to continue to stay sober, to continue to work on my recovery, to continue to uncover who the best version of myself is. And now my main motivator is to help as many other people achieve that for themselves. So that's what we're working on in this business and these services that we're offering other people. And at this point, it's just been talking to a lot of people and figuring out where, where their pain is in recovery and figuring it out um, between Bill and I and our own experience and our own um, pathway towards this place where we are now and trying to develop a pathway that's individualized for each new person in recovery that we meet. And um, for some, that's going to be, you know, supporting them in following the AA train and going to meetings and getting a sponsor and working the big book um, for other people. It might be smart recovery or refuge recovery or recovery Dharma or all these various programs for other people. It might be completing huge bucket list adventures. Like maybe they want to hike the Appalachian trail too, or ride their bike across the country um, or whatever it might be. I mean, we're all different and we're all going to take a different path, but we want to help people find the path that is best fitted for them to be successful in recovery. And that's not just being successfully sober. We want people to be happy and fulfilled in their recovery. Man, you guys are so badass. Um, and I think what you're building is, is so badass because there's so many people that just don't know what to do once they get sober. And then it's easy to fall back into their addiction because they're bored or something. Mm -hmm. So we were talking on, you know, on the side about putting resources up so people can find out more about you. So I'm going to build part of the resources page that I'm building. I'm going to add your, you guys on there to where people can find you and uh, you can give them ideas and maybe because look, for me, it's all about giving back, find, finding a way to give back. That's my purpose now. And that's what fulfills me is what it does for me is it restores my soul because I know the difference between being dead inside and being alive. And I'm alive in sobriety. You know, there's a huge difference for me. So just so everybody knows that that's what we're going to be doing. I'm going to, I got to learn as I go guys. So it may take me a minute (laughs) or something, but we're going to add resources so that people can find you. And that's where it's going to be. Silvertownpodcast.com. Look under resources. And pretty soon you'll see more about adventure memories on there about you guys too. So cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. For, yes. love, love sharing, love talking with you. I, I don't know if like we had we have this guy Lilo. Um, he told his story. He was like from Ireland. 
and I'm, I'm always looking at, I look at the time, did we beat Lilo's story, <laughs> right? And we're right there on the edge. So we're, we've almost done it. And you guys can well, see him on there. He's a great guy from, from Ireland that has an amazing story too. Cool. So you guys, thank you very much for, Thanks, Drifter. is there anything else that you guys want to say before we end this? Uh, I guess what I would say if, for this person who's listening and it's like, I don't know what to do right now. Pick, pick something, pick a goal that's small for just right now, whether, you know, it's just, just pick something that's easy for you to obtain, make sure it's specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound. So give them, Make sure that your goal fits those categories and then spend every day and work towards it just a little bit at a time and pretty soon you'll get there. You sound like a real therapist, Bill. No, he does, doesn't he? (laughs) Yeah. And I I would just say to anybody out there who's suffering in their recovery, um, something that I've always said to my clients, and it's a mantra that I use for myself, keep your head up even when you're fed up because life is not easy. And if anybody ever told you that it is, it's not. And guess what? If you're an addict and you're in recovery, life is just an extra layer of hard. Um, but it does not mean that you can't be happy and you deserve happiness. And there are lots of different ways. And if you think that we could help you, please reach out because we'd love to help you if we can. Boom. Thank you guys very much. Everybody just go over to you know, you have these podcasts and then silvertownpodcast.com. Look under resources here real soon and you'll see adventure memories also. Okay. Thank you guys so much. And remember, pour the poison down the sink. <laughs>